Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. I'm really excited for today's conversation. Keith McHenry was one of the founders of Food Not Bombs, and we have a wide-ranging talk about the history of that organization, some of the resistance it's faced from local and national governments, and some of its offshoots, all around the idea of the power and radical potential of feeding people. But first, let me read Keith's biography. Artist, activist, and author Keith McHenry co-founded Food Not Bombs in Boston with seven friends in 1980. He enjoyed his childhood living at the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Shenandoah, and several other national parks. Keith studied painting at Boston University and started a graphic design company called Brushfire Graphics. He has recovered, cooked, and shared food with the hungry with Food Not Bombs for 37 years. Keith was arrested, quote, for making a political statement, end quote, by sharing vegan meals in San Francisco, spent a total of two years in jail, and faced 25 years to life in prison. And we actually uh, spent some time talking about... Um, why he was arrested, and the real possibility he faced of uh, being thrown in jail for the rest of his life. He has written three books, including Hungry for Peace, How You Can Help End Poverty and War with Food Not Bombs, and The Anarchist Cookbook, which I didn't get a chance to ask him about, actually, but we'll just have to get him back on the show. Keith lives in Santa Cruz, California. He enjoys tending his garden, sharing meals with the hungry, maintaining one of the movement's websites, and helping coordinate logistics for Food Not Bombs globally. He is an experienced public speaker, giving presentations at colleges and conferences all over the world. Keith also draws, paints, and writes about social justice issues. And now, here's my conversation with Keith McHenry. This might not make it onto the podcast, but I noticed on your biography that um, your mom, uh, it says, uh, was running your family garden in on Cape Cod. Whereabouts in the Cape? Because I used to spend most summers in Sandwich. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's in uh, Marston's Mills, which was right next to um, Sandwich. So Barnstable is the next town. Yeah. Marston's Mills is a village in it. And 149 is the road that connects from 6A over to Route 28. And we lived on 140 off of 149. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I know right where that is. My uh, my dad turned most of our lawn into a garden uh, there in Sandwich and was having like real trouble. Uh, getting anything to grow there and took the soil to some kind of, I, I don't know who's doing this, some professor from some school. I mean, it might've been Cape Cod Community College or it might've been Harvard. I don't know. I right. uh, was doing free soil sample tests and he brought uh, the soil in to get tested. And the guy said, I'm really glad you came in because everybody's I've been testing all day has come back the same, really good. And I was worried that, you know, maybe our uh, machines weren't working, but yours is terrible. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so, so I'm glad you could set it for us. So it was like fit for growing onions and nothing else. So he took um, years and years building up the soil, putting in all kinds of compost, getting yard waste from neighbors and stuff, and finally got it to be really, um, you know, really fertile. And then, uh, unfortunately, that house was sold and the new people who moved in put in a lawn. So uh, <laughs> it, it was <laughs> so all for sad. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. My family had that, got that farm in 1914. Wow, and it was no. There was only one tree on the property of like at that point it was probably fifteen acres, and um, and that tree still was there when I was a kid. And uh, in fact, when when my family sold the land, the tree was still there. 
Um, so that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was a cedar tree. Yeah, yeah. My dad planted uh, two apple trees for me and my brother uh, there on the property. And it was strongly suggested to the new owners to not cut those trees down, but uh, I'm I, I I'm I don't even want to go check because I would just be sad if it was anything other than than the two trees still being there. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't I didn't go back to my family's land until my brother died and Dennis, he lived in Dennis, and I was brave enough to go back because I was heartbroken that the land got sold after yeah. all those years. And basically, my father's new wife just hated the land and she was rich and didn't appreciate any of it so. <laughs> no, yeah I, I mean keeping sort of intergenerational sustainability for agricultural practices is a thing that i published on because it's because it's such a thorny difficult issue yeah. like that yeah. um but so i'd like to start uh by talking about uh food not bombs and then uh get into your biography a little bit and look at some of the other um things that you've started like um you know uh homes not prisons and gardens, not lawns and all those sorts of things. But let me start with food, not bombs. There are probably people who don't know what that is. I've known about it since, I don't know, since college. But uh, can you explain uh, what that organization is and what it what it does? Yeah, well, food, not bombs is an all volunteer movement that's active in uh, at least a thousand cities of the world now. It was started in May of uh, 1980. And it was started in Boston by um, one high school person and the rest were college. I think, we, I don't know if we were all in college, but I was in college. We were all college age. And uh, it was started as a street performance group. And our idea was to uh, basically use food as a way of attracting attention for our ideas. And the main ideas we were concerned about at that time was the nuclear arms race because Reagan was running for president of the United States against Carter, and uh, about the uh, possible economic crisis that would exist if Reagan won the election. And, um, and he instituted the, the neoliberal structural adjustment policies that he was advocating in this campaign. So, those, so uh, also we were organizing against nuclear power. So it started out, we were influenced by a theater company called The Living Theater. Um, and we were acquaintances with some of the members of that. In fact, several of the, um, well, one of the co-founders, Joe Swanson, participated in their theater games. And uh, Mir Brown and Brian Feigenbaum and C.T. Lawrence Butler provided food to the theater games, and that's how we became uh, uh, associated with them. I think their most famous and popular culture for references in My Dinner with Andre, which was a movie um, back, I think, maybe in the 80s. Um, sure, I love that movie. Yeah, so anyway, and Justine, who is featured, who they complain about, Andre complains about um, going off into the forests in Poland and making love with their lovers instead of participating in the games was our direct contact to the living theater. And, um, and her house actually plays some roles in the evolution of Food Not Bombs. For example, I was waiting for my friend Joe to come out of her house when I spray painted a couple of uh, um, images on the sidewalk, a uh, mushroom cloud that said the word today, question mark. And uh, and it turned out that there was um, playwrights that lived next door, and they wrote a play called Murder Now based on that graffiti that then um, 
actually was the last really cool thing I did with my mom, which was show her, take her to the opening night of that play. And the uh, graffiti artist's mom was featured as a heroine in the play. And I was surprised at that. And so it was a beautiful way to uh, ultimately uh, um, celebrate my mom's life with her before her passing. Sure. So what, like, uh, what's the main activities that Food Not Bombs does nowadays? So now, so the, what happened in, um, in 19, on March 26th of 1981, we dressed up as hobos and we were going to do a soup line outside the stockholders meeting of the Bank of Boston. And we decided that we would not have enough support to look like a soup line. So I went to one of the last remaining, if not the last remaining homeless shelter from the Great Depression in, in Boston called the Pine Street Inn. And I gave a little speech to the guys. And they showed up the next day, and um, that became like a theatrical soup line. But the people in it said that they had no food at all for living outside. They got their donut and a coffee when they got kicked out of the shelter in the morning. But otherwise, they went hungry and suggested we do it every day. So that's when we started uh, doing it every day. So the basic premise at that point was that we would drive around in this old van and collect uh, food from grocery stores. I was a produce worker at a natural food store called Bread and Circus, which is now a Whole Foods in Central Square, Cambridge. And then we'd take the discarded produce to housing projects and, and bread and stuff, and we take you know pastries and things, and we'd take it to housing projects and uh, hand it out in the midday, and we had like a schedule for that. And then the afternoons and late evenings, we would hand out free meals with um, literature and music and so on in either Harvard Square or in the Boston Commons. And so we did that every day, um, um, and that became kind of the model. So uh, really now that's what people think of as food not bombs, that we collect food that can't be sold from grocery stores, bakeries, other um, uh, food programs, farmers, and so on. Uh, And then we make... uh, uh, vegan and vegetarian meals that we share on the streets. And we do this in one, a little over a thousand cities, maybe more in the world, and at least 70 countries worldwide. It's all volunteer. There's three principles which were originally agreed upon at the first uh, world gathering in uh, October of 1992, and, and then reaffirmed at the world gathering in 95, and both of which were in San Francisco. And the three principles are that the food is always um, free to anyone, rich or poor, stoned or sober, and the food is always uh, uh, vegan or vegetarian. That the second one is that we have no presidents, uh, directors, headquarters, each group's autonomous and makes decisions using a consensus process, and that we strive to include the people relying on our food to be uh, to participate in guiding the direction of the local Food Not Bombs chapter. And third, that we're not a charity, but that we're dedicated to taking nonviolent direct action to um, change society so no one has to eat at a soup kitchen or live in the parks. And so that's, uh, that's our, our strategy. And it's because of those three easy to understand and very popular uh, principles that it's been able to go everywhere in the world. You know, it, 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 we are very active in Buddhist cultures, Muslim cultures, Christian cultures, um, you know, first world areas, uh, the 
the global south. It just it's a model that transcends uh, class uh, um, issues in that way. Also, we are very part of it in the United States, particularly, is to um, make it possible for people that are living outside and people that have housing to interact on an equal basis. This is one of the reasons it's always outside and public. Um, also to get to uh, build popular support to end the policies that cause homelessness and hunger and poverty. And the most obvious uh, solution to that in the United States, where we have the largest military budget in the, in the world, uh, made much larger even this year if uh, if it passes, uh, which I assume it will. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, even it, you know it's the amount of money, for instance, people are pointing out in popular media that is uh, the increase in the military budget under the Biden administration. Um, just that increase alone would end homelessness in the United States for the whole year. So um, we, so we, we, you know, that's something we continue to advocate, and I think it's more important than ever to be advocating that, and um, and that's why we go out on the streets to try to encourage people to think, hey, one less aircraft carrier, and you end hunger in the United States, or one less F-16 fighter jet uh, squadron, and you know, you start housing people, um, you know, so so that's the the message that we have. And then the other is that we are autonomous from uh, state and corporate control. And that's uh, really where we get our power from, that we're autonomous. We make our own decisions on our own, uh, you know, in our own uh, um, way about what it is that we think is best. And, uh, and so we had a policy of, like, for example, of not applying for or accepting permission to do food not bombs by governments or or um, or their corporate sponsors so that's been a, a, a core part of the of our ideology and those are the things that bind us and has made this possible to be a global uh, decentralized movement that is uh, growing every day and uh, i think yesterday we got what requests for information from th two different cities on either restarting a food on bombs chapter or on starting one that never was happened to have ever been active in the in the in the community. So, um, so it's like every day there's new food on bombs groups. It's fluid. Some disappear, then they return. Um, I discover new groups every day just on social media that had no idea that we would be active in this in that community or city or. Um, like this morning, I thought Melbourne, Florida, food not bombs hadn't happened in a while, but they're leading the forefront of a protest against a law uh, banning panhandling in, in their community. So, um, you know, it's it's very dynamic and exciting, all the things that food not bombs participates in and, and helps organize. And the pandemic has been one of the kind of the bright spots for food not bombs because we've been outside in my case, for now over a year, sharing food every single day. Uh, for the first 100 days, we were the food and water for people in Santa Cruz, California. Um, it took a while for the county systems to get started. But I think that's common, uh, that we are the people on the scene. <clears throat> that happened also with Katrina. We provided the meals in solidarity with uh, Veterans for Peace and 
Felipe from the Rainbow family down in New Orleans for eight months. And the Red Cross gave out our toll-free number as the official number for access to food and resources. And uh, that kept us very, very busy for eight months. Sure, I can imagine. And I have questions about all three of those sort of central guiding principles. Uh, you know, I have, I heard about this organization, I don't know, like 2000, like very early, because I'm from the Bay Area. Uh, you know, my mom's family is, and that's where I spent most of my life. And, uh, you know, I've since looked at it from through an academic lens. I've published, uh, I've used you guys as an example of how to do things well in, in uh, food justice activism. Um, but so let me go through each one of those. Uh, one of my questions um, is maybe about the third one where you're talking about it not being a charity. So it'd be really easy to think of Food Not Bombs as uh, a, a way to give food to the homeless, which is laudable, right? So you're handing out food to people that, um, you know, that need something to eat. Um, but it seems that Food Not Bombs is trying to do something a lot more than that, right? Some more sort of a, like a propaganda of the deed, if you like that phrase, of uh, trying to use that gift of food as a locus uh, for demonstrating something, for trying to make change, to try to actually have a material impact more than just enough food for today for some people who happen to show up. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the part of the idea is, is to empower um, people, both um, homeless and, and housed, to really transform society and make the society that we really um, know we should, could have if we organized in such a way to make it possible and and, and uh, to erase this idea of us and them. Because the reality is that the people living inside and the people living outside have so much more in common than, uh, than we do, that those two communities do with, say, the uber rich and the people that are uh, in governments and corporations making decisions. So that's, that, so to, we're sort of uh, in a certain sense, um, practicing to create the world that we are going to be living in and and slowly building up our, our knowledge, muscles, coordination uh, of, uh, you know, of how, of how to really do this. And I think that's the most important. So in a certain sense, even from the very beginning of Food Not Bombs, part of our idea was that we would, um, we would resist and protest the current dominant uh, death culture that um, is suppressing everybody and suppressing, uh, you know, our our communities, and and not only resist that, but also create the transition to the future that we really want to have. And that's part of the key of be of existing for forty years is that you know maybe hopefully after if you know things are not dramatically more. Uh, chaotic and, and disturbing. Uh, in another forty years, we will, so many people will have practiced the idea of cooperatively uh, organizing themselves and making decisions as a, as a community and not relying on state and, and corporate support. That um, you know that then we we're able to uh, basically replace this uh, very death-oriented culture with one that. Uh, you know that celebrates community and life, and and um, and is much more positive. So there was a so the so it was a slow version of revolution in a certain way, 
um, as opposed to, and one where it's really grounded. So if part of our philosophy, I mean, we're direct, you know, we're dedicated to nonviolent direct action. And, um, and, and so that, that for our analysis was that well, one, we're against war. So we're against uh, the violence of violence of social change, um, using so violence for social change. And, um, and with an idea that it would actually um, stick, that it would be much more permanent change. And, and a, you know, we started Food Not Bombs at a time when it was a bipolar world. You had communism versus capitalism. There was proxy wars funded and organized by both sides. And then there would be, like, say, a revolution would occur, but it was by the bullet. And therefore, then to maintain the uh, that um, change they had to use violence to stay in power so we rejected that as an idea we wanted the community to feel like the that they're free to make decisions on their own and that those decisions would be to the benefit of everyone because people would be uh, working together and cooperating so that's how that's the the larger mega view of, of why we have that philosophy but the uh, the other thing is that uh, not being a charity is super important because we, uh, you know, we want to be on equal footing with people living outside because the people living outside really are the backbone of this social change. And it's not this idea that we are somehow privileged people, the, which many of us really are, that are now like, you know, reaching out to the poor and the meek below us and that the more, the poor and meek will always be with us. And, and we saw like in the charity model, particularly in 1980 when we started, but even more so now there's a thing, you know, like the homeless industrial complex is sure. a massive economic uh, force in our country, but it's dependent upon unhoused people feeling that they uh, are dependent upon these social systems to get housing, not that they're dependent upon their own selves. And I think, you know, we are slowly seeing, um, particularly with the increase in homelessness, a, a, an empowerment of people living on the streets that they realize that they are, um, you know, that they should have equal rights and that they should not be suppressed by these, um, you know, by the homeless industrial complex. So Yeah. And, and one sign that what you're doing is uh, nonviolent direct action and not just, you know, sort of a nice thing of giving out food, which is for sure nice. Um or, you know, as I was saying, the propaganda of the deed, which is the idea that you act the way you'd like the world to be and show through the resistance to that action that the world isn't like that now and maybe, you know, place a stark moral choice before people. So, you know, one of the sort of signs that that's what's going on is that you'd think if all you were doing was feeding people that uh, local institutions like the police would be in favor of that. You know, the police don't come and break up soup kitchens or homeless shelters. But in fact, Food Not Bombs uh, has long been persecuted by uh, law enforcement agencies, both local and federal. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it's really interesting. At the beginning of Food Not Bombs, uh, first eight years, we were actually allies of the local Boston and Cambridge government. And, um, and partially because, for instance, there was a former Black Panther that was on city council in Cambridge, uh, Carol Hill, I believe was her name. And uh, Al Vellucci, the mayor of Cambridge, had been uh, actually stealing fish off of the uh, uh, 
you know, Boston Harbor to give away to the poor during the <laughs> Great Depression. And so there was like kind of this camaraderie. And, and I remember uh, 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 we actually sponsored, uh, co-sponsored with city council, three marches from city hall to uh, Draper Laboratory, which is where I got the name Food Not Bombs from because uh, the projects I was first taking food to were across the street from a weapons lab designing guidance systems for nuclear weapons. So we were in solidarity there. And the Boston city government also was uh, very supportive. We never had any problems with local police or any of that. And partially because the police in Boston those days were really busy, uh, you know, uh, participating in basically a black market uh, way of surviving. So um, so that was not, um, we had no problem there. But then in San Francisco in 19... 88, I uh, started a second group and I took notes on how I started that group, which became a flyer called Seven Steps to Starting a Food on Palms. And uh, we began sharing food in uh, March, maybe April of that year at the corner of Haight and Stanyon in uh, entrance to Golden Gate Park. We chose Mondays at that address because the Haight-Ashbury Soup Kitchen served Tuesdays through Fridays, and there was a churches that served on the weekends. And it was just fantastic. And my assumption was, because as a child, I was in, I've been in and out of San Francisco my whole life. My grandparents on my dad's side lived in uh, Las Gatos, south of, uh, of San Francisco. Yeah, sure. And, yeah, I've been, I've been in the Bay Area uh, yeah. my whole life, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they, and my grandfather started the tidal pool walks at uh, Natural Bridges in, in Santa Cruz. And so I've been in here forever. So, but the, uh, so anyway, my assumption though, because I uh, was that San Francisco was a liberal city, there wouldn't be any issues. In fact, the new mayor had been a social worker before he became a mayor. His name was Art Agnos. But on August 15th of 88, we, uh, um, well, first of all, a, a in July, we were approached by, which I later found out was the director of the Haight-Ashbury Soup Kitchen, um, and suggested that we get a permit. And I wrote to the person, Peter Ash, that he um, thought, that told me to write to, and I said we'd get a street performance permit like we had in Cambridge. But instead, on uh, August 15th of that year, uh, riot police came out of uh, Golden Gate Park and arrested um, nine of us for serving food. And that started what became ultimately a total of over 1,000 arrests in San Francisco for feeding the hungry. And uh, I, seven days ago, actually, I was, got uh, access to an internal FBI memo from that time uh, declaring us a, a national security threat. And, um, and a, a top secret memo, uh, eyes only, you must carefully paraphrase what you are writing in this. No one can see this without authorization from, you know, from headquarters, from uh, the uh, head of the FBI in Washington, D.C. and so on. So did you get that? Did you get that from a FOIA request or? Yeah, yeah. We're always doing FOIA requests and and we are slowly getting um, documents as a, as a result. I'm hoping to get more on that particular document. Um, so, uh, um you know, it's unclear totally what the I, uh, what the logic of that is, but it is interesting that there, we would be of interest at that point. Um, maybe the FBI was always an interest in the, before that, and we just don't have documents from predating the uh, eighty eight. But um, but the 
so so the the we heard there were articles written in 1988 um, saying that um, Bechtel Corporation, Chevron, and uh, Bank of America, all three who were, had headquarters in San Francisco at that time, um, were concerned that there would be a growing uh, threat of food not bombs to their economic interests. Um, the first ser bunch of arrests were misdemeanor arrests for not having a permit. I think it was like a 94 arrest in, in 88. Uh, it turned out no permit existed. So the mayor and myself and community leaders uh, negotiated and we created a permit process, which uh, ultimately was abandoned by the city um, and actually sabotaged by the city. I had to go to federal court uh, before a Judge Peckham, uh, who ruled that the city had to issue as a environmental health permit um, that couldn't just keep keeping the, uh, changing the requirements week after week. We got the permit, but then they were able to, uh, um, they, they had a person bring a sheet of cake to, before we were set up and had our health permit displayed. And they had paid a homeless person to come and get a slice of cake, that cake so that we would be serving food without a permit. And then our that permit got deleted, as uh, got uh, revoked. And then eventually um, with the permit process itself was deleted by the next mayor. And that and there was court order against serving food without a permit, but no permit was possible. So we had uh, 750 arrests for felony conspiracy to serve food in violation of a court order. And during that period of time, um, we had actually developed, uh, or even a little, even when they were misdemeanors, we developed a, a policy of decoy foods where we would come in with um, small sampling of our meal in plastic buckets that we didn't care if they were lost. Um, so that we have one wave that would come in, those people would be arrested and that food confiscated. We'd come in with another wave, those people would be arrested, no food confiscated. And then we'd come in with all the rest of the food and feed everybody there. And then the other program we had was uh, called Risk Arrest One Day a Month with Food Not Bombs. And then your church group or your Boy Scout troop or whatever it was would sign up for one day a month to come out and share food and go to jail. And so that was also a pretty successful campaign. And we ultimately, by, um, July, by the end of June, beginning of July of 1995, the city um, gave up. It was actually kind of a soft strike, work stoppage by the police, uh, rank and file who refused to cooperate with their um, commanders. And, uh, and then things flipped as a result of that. And then uh, we ended up with positive media for the first time. Um, and uh, the, the arrest in San Francisco ended. But there have also been, um, like for instance, there's been waves of arrests of Tampa food nut bombs in Tampa, Florida, they've gone through four different um, eras of arrest. There's been a number of eras of arrest of Fort Lauderdale food not bombs, which has won some very important uh, federal case against the city of Fort Lauderdale that's saying, um, in fact, the, the judge that wrote the order, Judge Jordan, wrote a beautiful um, document basically about the right to free speech and the right to community to break bread together and and the historic uh, past of that and that's been quite really positive um and then we've and we've been arrested one a couple of times down in la um arcata california 
threatened with arrest in many places. Um, and, uh, and then outside the country, we have pretty regular arrests in, in Minsk, Belarus. Um, we've been arrested a few times in Moscow, Russia, and um, uh, once by accident in Utrecht, uh, Netherlands, and uh, once in uh, Brixton, England. Uh, but largely, we, you know, it's been a focus has been the U.S. That where there are 70 cities that technically have laws against feeding the hungry outside, which are typically directed towards food, not bombs, and were inspired by the presence of, of a local food, not bombs. Um, so why do you think that is? Because you could certainly imagine a universe where nobody cared. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where they're like, well, you know, they're handing out food to the homeless. That sounds you know, pretty good, morally speaking, uh, you know, in, in line with Christian values and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and it's not like you'd set up an outside restaurant that was permanently in place in a park or something. Um, and even if you had, it would be sort of a municipal matter of getting a fine for not having, you know, proper permitting. So why do you think there is that sort of uh, really hard crackdown in some places and at some times by local police, federal investigations? What do you think is motivating all that? Well, I think that the thing that uh, that is not spoken of very frequently is the national security threat, as uh, as our internal FBI memos uh, frequently um, note. And that and um, there was a State Department lecture um, that was aired on uh, C-SPAN in April of two thousand and nine which compared us to Al-Qaeda, who was more dangerous. And their analysis was that because Food Not Bombs was an indigenous organization made up of local people that with uh, local roots, with a message that money should be diverted from military spending towards education, healthcare, and other social needs, that that was a major um, uh, national security threat, far greater than Al-Qaeda, and that they believed that uh, that we would exist a lot longer than Al-Qaeda. And um, as it's turning out, that their prediction was true. Yeah, that's a pretty good analysis. Because, that's a pretty good analysis, actually. Yeah, and and actually, and, and what to me is that's fantastic. I mean, that's the, the eight of us that started Freedom Bonds. That's our goal, is to be that threat. And we're very happy that the national security state believes that it is. Um, the But then on the local level, the basic, uh, you know, that's something that no government would ever want to admit in public and talk about, you know, because that means ideas count. And that certainly is not something we would want to promote in this society. But um, but the uh, the local struggle, for instance, in the original struggle in San Francisco, you had what I just said, national security threat aspect by the Bechtel, which was, uh, and Bank of America and Chevron, who, had, who were going to be in, uh, central to the next war in Iraq, for example. Um, the uh, uh, is the two other groups of people that were inter, uh, of concern. I think the one, one of them was uh, the police themselves, which in San Francisco's case, they were concerned that the that the new mayor would be liberal and therefore they had to put him in his place. That I don't think became an issue in future arrests in either San Francisco or other cities. Uh, but the most common one was the issue of sharing food in public and that there being this, all the people living outside coming to eat with you. And partially you can notice too that in, in all the most, every city where Food Not Bombs has been arrested 
in the United States had a very liberal local government. And, uh, and so that, so I think that part of the problem for the liberal local government was that they're supposed to be answering the, this crisis and, but why can people with no money go out and serve vegan meals in some public area and have a lot of people show up to eat if they are in fact solving the problem? So from their perspective, they, they want it out of sight. So in San Francisco, in the beginning of the arrest, the police told the media um, that they were happy for us to feed the hungry as long as uh, we did it at the armory out by the ocean. But we couldn't do it in public at the entrance to Golden Gate Park and that they would even provide city buses and so on to take the homeless out to the armory and then we'd feed them there and then they're bringing all the people back in. So it's the, the issue that it's uh, um, that it's making it very clear that the local government and the state or federal government, for that matter, are not actually addressing the crisis of homelessness and, and hunger, because if we can go out with vegan meals and serve them on the streets and get a huge crowd to come and eat, then that shows that what you know that you know obviously the city of San Francisco with a three billion dollar year budget at that time could have set up a um, you know a free meal program in front of city hall themselves and and handed out free steak dinners to everybody, but they chose not to do that and uh, and um, so that so that's part of it. The other is the is property speculation. So one of the reasons that they also are opposed to this is that the the political elite are more interested in encouraging property speculating than they are in um, you know in solving problems of poverty and homelessness. So for instance, in even though it's eighty eight eighty nine is when we're first uh, being arrested, you still had the Soviet Union and the, and the, the West kind of in, in a conflict, although that's starting to fall apart. Um, you, um, um, you know, San Francisco was, in particularly in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, uh, was trying to gentrify. That was a super important thing. And then eventually what we'll see in, in uh, um, 91, 92 is what's called the savings and loan crisis, which was the first version in the period of food, not bombs. Um, Home, you know, housing crisis that then would be repeated again in an even worse situation uh, in the 2007-2008 housing foreclosure crisis. And now we're in the mega housing foreclosure crisis thing, uh, which will be, you know, which is uh, be way beyond what we saw both in the savings and loan or in the 2007-2008 crisis. So, um, you know, that that's where the conflict is. And that's where the conflict is here in Santa Cruz, where we've been threatened with arrest. We were supposed to be arrested on March 1st for sharing food in a parking lot at the corner of Laurel and Front Street because they're building luxury condos directly across the street from there. In fact, they've got seven large luxury condo projects in downtown Santa Cruz um, with already empty luxury condo buildings sitting around downtown. And yet you have hundreds and hundreds of unhoused people living. Many of them are people who actually built some of the buildings in our community who now live on the streets outside the very buildings that they built. So, um, you know, so this is a, uh, so this is where the problem lies. And I think the, though the Republican led 
governments, uh, city governments are less inclined to arrest us because they're going, well, these are private citizens not taking money from the government. And so therefore they're in alignment with our political ideology, even though, um, you know, so that's why I think they're a little, they're less repressive. Whereas uh, particularly liberal Democrats are supposed to be for the little guy. And this shows the, that as being actually false and they're not interested in helping. That's fascinating. And I mean, Santa Cruz is a good example of a liberal city with uh, like a really good vegan diner downtown, but uh, you can't hand out vegan food for free to, uh, to the homeless there. I mean, one of the hideousnesses of California is uh, the homeless situation of, or people, or I should say the situation of people not having access to the many vacant properties uh, in California and being forced to sleep outside uh, in dangerous circumstances um, due partly to gentrification and partly to property speculation. Uh, but another hideous thing about California is um, the three strikes law, uh, which I, I remember coming in, uh, you know, when I was a young person living there. Uh, and you yourself actually ran afoul of that. You were arrested. Uh, you, you had three strikes, uh, which for those who don't don't know, and I know I have listeners who are outside of the United States, means that um, if you've been arrested for uh, two felonies, then your third arrest, even for something very minor, can lead to a life sentence in prison. Uh, so can you talk about your experiences with that? Yeah. So uh, so in January, um, I think about 4th or so of uh, 1994, about four days after the um, uh, the California three strikes law that was passed by the California voters, which is was even more harsh than the one the legislature had in place at that time. Um, I got arrested for assault battery and strong arm robbery. I was, uh, at the time, uh, four days earlier, there was the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas, Mexico. And we were connected with, uh, we had friends that were, uh, particularly uh, John Ross, who was a dear friend of mine, and a journalist that was uh, living in Chiapas often with with them. Um, So we had a, you know, we were do, I had a big sign saying Viva Zapatista, no NAFTA in front of City Hall. I parked in a legal parking space. Some guy came out. I was wearing a chef's hat and a chef's coat that was, you know, with Funa Bombs logos embroidered on them that a local business had given to me. And um, this guy with a cell phone, which was early in the cell phone world, was able to call a tow truck. My truck was towed away from a legal spot. So I went inside to a pay phone to locate my truck so at the end of the meal I could gather up all the belongings and go home. So while I was on the payphone, so the guy that called the tow truck started smashing me against the wall of the phone booth and so I apologized to the towing lady and went, went upstairs to finish locating the, my vehicle and once I had, I was coming down the rotunda of City Hall which has been featured in many movies. It's a very beautiful building. Sure. Um, and uh, um, what and uh, two plainclothes cops and a uniform officer at the bottom asked me to come over and speak with them, and I had known them, and so I went over to talk to them, and and they said I was under arrest for assault battery and strong arm robbery, and they had a, like a little booklet with them and said this is a strike under the California California three strikes law, so that was my first strike, and it took a bit of time to get bailed out, and then um, at Howard Zinn, who was in a friend of mine and who was my 
American history professor at Boston University. I'm definitely going to ask you about that because yeah, he was so, one of my main inspirations um, when I was in college as well. Yeah, he was he's fantastic. And so anyway, he had come to uh, um, to speak after that first strike uh, at a press conference and suggested that we um, try to get the Clinton administration and uh, Nancy Pelosi, who was our congressperson, to uh, do an investigation and, and maybe bring in federal marshals as it happened in the South under Bobby Kennedy during the civil rights movement. So yeah. we're like, okay, that sounds great. So we started a letter writing campaign and we actually did, and we had a video evidence of, um, which is now a video we call Food Not Bombs Greatest Hits, but it was um, video press release at the time which showed people being arrested and beaten for feeding people. And we had the wiretap, my first wiretap memo, which was a San Francisco Police Department wiretap my home phone and published a memo about it on September 27th of 88. And, um, and we provide all that information to Amnesty, to the United Nations Human Rights Commission, to the to, uh, Civil Rights Division of the Clinton Administration's um, Department of Justice and so on. So we did get uh, a letter back from uh, Amnesty saying they would consider us prisoners of conscience. And as I was handing out that, uh, it was actually a fax uh, back in the day. That's how we communicated High tech. internationally. <laughs> and so we, uh, I was a, a, a local, kind of the, the Rush Limbaugh of uh, San Francisco. Um, Barbara Kaufman's aide, Nancy Kitt, smashed, uh, her, shut her door violently on me and my friend Jesse. And I put my hand out to stop the door from hitting Jesse, who at that time was already 70 years old. And uh, my hand went through the glass, which is a very thin, paper, thin, pebbly glass, and cut my hand. And I got charged with assault with a deadly weapon, claiming that I was trying to kill her. And what, was, what was the deadly weapon? Your hand? The, the glass. Uh, oh. I was. They actually, fortunately, a bike messenger videotaped the scene right after, as it was, ha- right after it was happening. And then the detectives came in, broke the window out so that it would match their case. And so we had two conflicting pieces of information, which was very good. So first, so first you're arrested for uh, trying to steal your own car, and then you're arrested for assaulting someone with a deadly weapon that they brought into the situation. This is a, it's sounding a little suspicious, but go yeah. on. Yeah, and then the third one was that um, we, because the police came every day, back then folding tables were more expensive, harder to come by, big drag. So the cops uh, kept taking our tables. So we started borrowing milk crates from a vegetarian restaurant on Market Street, which we'd take back if the police did not take take them from us. And so I got charged with stealing 24 Berkeley Farms dairy milk crates. That was the third strike. And that was connected to the alleged stealing of a beeper from the assault battery strong arm robbery case. No beeper was ever found in that in the January 4th, 94 case, because who I didn't even really know anything about beepers. First of all, I never stole the beeper. And the sure. evidence was that he bought a $99 beeper. And in fact, if it had been a $95 beeper, it wouldn't have been a strike. And therefore, um, it's pretty clear things were crazy. Now, I ended up settling for assault battery strong home robbery because they were bringing riot police into the courtroom to guard the courtroom from the dangerous of myself and and supporters. Sure, you might and, start handing out food. Yeah, so the, I just realized that to get a, a jury to uh, 
you know, to watch like riot police and lining the walls during the entire court case was going to make it pretty difficult. And I fortunately drew a relatively good judge, Judge Lucy McCabe, and she uh, denounced the city for what they're doing, but said, let's get rid of the case. Um, and uh, and after, she goes, after all, all the, all the mayor wants to do is go to cocktail parties and brag that you're a felon and, and what do you care if you're a felon? And I go, I agree. I don't give a, I don't care. And so then that's what happened. And, uh, and um, being a convicted felon for assault, battery, strong arm robbery is like the least of my problems security wise. Uh, I'm not allowed into Canada, although I do sneak in. Uh, my archives are at the University of Victoria. I'm not, allegedly not allowed to go into Australia, although I've gotten into there at the invitation of the Green Party or Parliament of New South Wales. So there's ways I can navigate. Um, I was uh, ultimately blacklisted from employment in the United States in, uh, after 9-11, wherein I was fired from um, uh, uh, United Way of Tucson in Southern Arizona at the insistence of Raytheon Missile Systems, who was the largest client of uh, United Way in Tucson. And then I was uh, fired two more times. And the, fortunately, the last time I was fired, my supervisor, uh, Mitzi Theron at um, Sunsound Radio for the Blind, um, uh, was a really beautiful uh, woman. She was had been not had sight since a child. Um, we had a really tight relationship. And therefore, she was like, quite honest with me. And uh, and she didn't know know why I was not allowed to work, but she had received a phone call that I was not allowed to work in the United States. And she said that it was because I was on a blacklist and um, she felt bad that she was letting me go. But then that was the last time I worked. So. Yeah. the uh, I mean, something that maybe uh, liberal Democrats can keep in mind as they push for increasing uh, laws and new security restrictions based on the events of January 6th is that uh, much like after September 11th, uh, when you give people a lot more ability to enforce laws and persecute people, it surprisingly doesn't get turned exclusively on the people that you were scared of in the first place when you pass those laws, but <laughs> but ends up being used as a cudgel against uh, other groups that you might not be uh, as frightened of. But yeah, how well, did... yeah. In fact, uh, you know the the the, uh, the laws after nine eleven not only were you know did it cause me a situation which has been fantastic not being able to work I have plenty of free time to organize. <laughs> no one can accuse you of being state. lazy. That's yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> but the um, but the uh, but the other thing is you know we could look at say for instance there's a um, Connor Cash is a food not bombs activist who was framed by the FBI on terrorism charges. He fortunately um, succeeded in that case. Um, then you have, you know, there's a, so there's a whole system, most of the non-Muslim uh, domestic terrorist cases in the United States since 9-11 have been of Food Not Bombs volunteers or of food, uh, uh, maybe not when they were at, you know, for instance, we have a huge amount of documents about um, Food Not Bombs interaction and participation, and in some cases even starting local Earth First groups to organize to stop mining programs or fracking operations or uh, pipe, pipelines, things like that. And so then we also were, uh, you know, we were targeted by the FBI under Obama administration during Occupy, of which uh, there's a very, really interesting case 
of what's called the Cleveland Five, of which three of the five were Food Not Bombs volunteers, where they had uh, a paid informant join Food Not Bombs and, um, and at the Occupy Kitchen and try to manipulate events, uh, uh, ultimately to be a, a, a plot that the FBI conceived of themselves to bomb a bridge in uh, outside, you know, in a national park. So it would be a federal case intentionally um, and and so on. And just to read the complaint, the, the, which is, is online. um, It gives you an idea of, of, of how desperate the government is to find domestic terrorists when there are no domestic terrorists um, of like just regular people. Um, there are domestic terrorists, which you would call like maybe militarized police departments or sure. domestic terrorists like the FBI itself, but you wouldn't find or or domestic terrorists like armed aspects of the KKK and neo-Nazi groups. So there's not like there isn't domestic terrorists, but the it, the evidence is in that the people that they're concerned about are people that are questioning capitalism. And that that ultimately, when you look at, uh, I think Glenn Greenwald put out a document showing the categories that will be in the new domestic terrorism uh, bill. Um, mostly it's associated with things food not bombs are doing, like being questioning capitalism. That's one group. Uh, animal People that believe in animal uh, the animal rights, that's another group. People that think that the environment should be protected, that would be another group. Um, and people that were opposed to poverty, uh, people that were interested in decentralized, non-hierarchical ways of organizing. Those are the targets of the domestic terrorism law. It's basically food, not bombs, earth first, um, you know, direct action everywhere. Um, you know, maybe the, uh, um, you know, part parts of a, Extinction Rebellion would be certainly one of the groups. So that's the the that's who the domestic terrorism law is aimed at. Um, now neo Nazis are support. They actually and Ku Klux Klan support capitalism. Their ideology is not opposed to to the economic and political system exactly that we have. So. Um, you know, so the Nazis are not the problem from the people in power's point of view. What is a problem is people questioning the political and economic system as it currently exists, and that would be groups like Earth First, Food Not Bombs, animal rights groups, and so on. Uh, you know, uh, people protesting oil pipelines, fracking. Um, you know, the many. You know, people trying to make a better world that would actually be safe for everybody. Yeah. Uh, organic gardening as a issue you know there's a threat you know why is all of our money go tax dollars go to fund genetically modified crops like soy and and uh and corn and animal you know massive industrial animal agriculture while you know organic farms are struggling to to stay afloat and compete against uh, large uh, transnational corporate interests and that that's exactly what's going on in india with the strike there you could see like pushing back on uh, corporate power and corporate agriculture is um, something that is a global phenomenon. Now that the U.S. is trying to force, um, you know, Mexico into abandoning their law against uh, 
Roundup and and the Montana genetically modified um, corn. Yeah, um, no, the uh, no. the the fight to preserve um, indigenous varietals of corn and not have Roundup ready corn is like a serious issue in Mexico. But so, how did you beat that third charge? Why aren't why am I not calling into prison to talk to you right now? Oh, okay, because so what I did was I settled the uh, I agreed to um, to to if they dropped the uh, the two other um, serious and violent felonies, so to speak, um, I pled guilty to assault, battery, strong arm robbery in exchange for the other two cases being dropped, and I got credit for time served, and I was able to write my own um, probation uh, because the uh, and uh, the judge agreed to that, and so my and I got my credit for time served was for, according to Arlo Smith, the district attorney at the time, I had done 500 days in jail. For feeding people in San Francisco, so I got 500 days credit time served, and I could only be violated on my probation, uh, which I was able to get down to only 12 months, which was good. And if I was uh, accused of uh, murder or bombing, and the reason for that is I was arrested uh, four more times while on probation, which typically would mean I would have been doing. 90 days in San Quentin as a result, but um, because of this agreement, and even though my um, my probation officer tried to get me into um, San Quentin for 90 days, um, was unable to do so because of this agreement. So my concern was that, that I would just get arrested for feeding people immediately. I was picked sure. up a bunch of, I was actually picked up three times where I technically was not arrested, but I was picked up. Um, this is during the, the 94, I was taken to a room at what into the basement and then up to a room in an elevator in uh, what turned out to be police headquarters where my clothing was ripped off and I was lifted by my arms and legs. There was a, probably a half dozen or more officers in this dark room, some kicking me in the sides and in the head and they're all swearing and screaming. And they ripped my ligaments and tendons and then stuffed me in what I later found out from a, a person stationed at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan was called a stress position cage, where you spend like the first uh, hours trying to stretch out your legs, uh, but cannot. And that, um, uh, after three times of that, where I spent three days in each occasion in that stress position cage in my underwear, um, my I had horrible problems with uh, severe pain in my legs and arms. Sure, for, as as you might for years and years, which I ultimately overcame by a water only fast and uh, about ten years ago, and so I've not had any problems ever since. Well, that's good. Anyway, you know, I'm obviously I'm glad you feel better, uh, and we're over able to overcome some of the long term injuries, but. Uh... You know, when we think about the police brutality against people that are engaged in nonviolent direct action, I think a lot of us think of it as a historical sort of civil rights 1960s thing and not something that continues on to this day, but it obviously is. Um, so, and, and let me know when you need to go, but uh, I want to talk about those other, two of the other founding principles that you discussed. Yeah. And one of them is uh, about uh, why vegan food? I mean, I am vegan, um, so I've, I have my own biases in that direction, but why uh, did you guys decide right from the very beginning that it would be vegan food you hand out to the homeless? Well, in, in those days, oddly enough, we didn't never heard the name vegan, but um, so 
we, we were um, vegetarian or vegan, the, the eight of us. So that was the, obviously, we weren't going to serve meat because we weren't, we didn't cook with meat or dairy. Um, maybe uh, yogurt or something like that was still happening. Now, I became uh, vegan because I had bought 50 uh, fertilized eggs for my mom so she could raise hens and have and collect eggs. And it turned out I got them unsexed, saved me $5. And I ended up with 25 roosters and 25 hens. And my dad then uh, uh, explained yeah, that, how- I'm, That's not a great ratio. Yeah. So it was a nightmare. There was like no hens had feathers on them at all. And um, very stressful for the hen house that I helped build for my mom. And so anyway, I had to kill six roosters and one hen. And that night, the whole barnyard was freaked out. The other roosters were flipped out. The other hens were freaked out. My mom's goats were freaked out. You know, there was like a totally, it was like a Hitchcock movie. And so that's when I stopped eating meat. But then, um, so I was like maybe 16 years old, 17 years old. So then, um, but then for Food Not Bombs, the the ideas we had were, um, one, we did we if we were for peace and social justice the last thing we wanted to do was to support the violence of the meat industry so that that was uh, one of our we wanted to live our principles and and show that we were nonviolent in all aspects of what we were doing including the food we were sharing and that to me has always astounded me that you could be a peace activist and eat meat you know, it just seems very unusual, but you know, it's very common. And I've gone to peace events where there was nothing but meat, and it was like a bizarre thing. So, um, th- so that was one principle. The other was that we were poor; we had no money, and um, we didn't want to have to feel obligated to get refrigeration and heat, and heat tables and all these things to safely hand out, uh, you know food that was meat and dairy, the perishable food, where the bacteria could grow much more quickly and be more deadly and so on. So that was another another reason. And then the other is that we had read a book called um, Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. Sure. And we were, and it talked about how you could end world hunger um, if we went, plant, if we were plant, more plant-based. And in, in 1980, um, when we're making this decision, the you know people thought of vegetarians as being from india um they thought that hunger and poverty was from india or from africa they didn't perceive it as being an issue in north america so we were trying to turn that around too and we actually had a flyer called that by um, food first called um you know 12 myths of hunger um, things like that. And, and so we, that, those are why we um, maintain our vegan principle. Now, the reason we call it ve- vegan or vegetarian is because we would get bread and bagels, say, from, um, you know, that, that we couldn't tell whether there was dairy in them. Yeah. And so we wanted to make sure people knew that if you ate the bread or the pastries, it might have cheese in some cases, but more very rarely at least you could kind of tell that was true but uh you know might have uh uh milk as a part of its ingredient or it might have um maybe eggs you know like it's part of the bread so those were that's how that came about and and uh, and then 
over time, once it becomes clear, you know, because during the 41 years of doing food not bombs, you know, animal agriculture has gone to these massive feedlots and GMO crops have been invented and, and the connection between food and climate change has become more and more obvious. So now it's like even more important than ever to maintain uh, uh, our ideas of, of being vegan. Although I have to say during the pandemic, it's been just total chaos so, because everybody wants to help out and, and you, you know, it's not, we like, for instance, here, we do it every day and you just don't know what's going to arrive. That's going to get handed out when you're, you know, so we've sort of like what we are, policy currently during the pandemic is that what we make is vegan, but what arrives could potentially not be. And, um, and so we just try to either move it immediately or throw it away, you know? Sure. Um, and if, sadly, there's not a lot of other places to, you know, in the past, we used to direct people to take their meat and dairy to other food programs that are happy to share that food. But during the pandemic, that's not been so easy. Sure. I bet. So, and then, um, uh, then the other sort of founding principle of yours that I think is really interesting is this idea of direct, maximal, maximally democratic organization, right? So distributed kind of autonomous groups rather than, I mean, you know, you're not the king of food, not bombs, you know, oh. uh, what was the thought behind that? And has that raised difficulties or has that had sort of surprising strengths? How has that, how has that been for you? Well, you know, so the, the other thing about the eight of us that started Food Not Bombs is we were anarchists. Yeah. And in 1980, anarchism was kind of a like, um, you know, so the, the political left in the United States still at that time was very strongly um, kind of controlled by, by mo mostly communist groups, you know. So, for instance, the mobilization against the Vietnam War ha had a lot of uh, sort of communist party or sectarian groups as as it's at its core um and and uh but we also were associated with like a quaker movement and uh a lot of us were involved so you know my earliest influence in part was reading um on civil disobedience by henry david thoreau when i was um in the fifth grade mm -hmm. and that was he was a war tax resistor the part that i when i before i read all of walden i read and the Penguin edition, you could it was on civil disobedience, was the shorter version, and I just learned to read, so I was all excited to read that first as my first adult um, literature, and that inspired me to be a war tax resistor. So, um, so there, so we were kind of also connected to um, to a lot of the Quaker movement and the movement for a new society. People, the the people that published the. Movement for a New Society published my first book, Food Not Bombs, How to Feed the Hungry and Build Community in 1992. Um, so we were adopting the I ideas of consensus. And the other thing that was happening is that, that the, the, um, they had a huge influence in the anti-nuclear movement in, in New England, even before I got involved. And so the meetings for Clamshell Alliance were done in cons by consensus. Now, there's definitely been problems with the consensus process being, you know, the spirit of it being really fantastic, but some of the logistics of it. For example, I think the, the largest problem uh, most in recent history was the use of consensus during Occupy and just uh, it need to be really thought out better as that 
into smaller groups and 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 you know the FBI has figured out ways to disrupt uh, groups using consensus and so on. Right. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was going to say if you're getting a you know if you're getting infiltrated by uh, people who are determined to disrupt a group's ability to function, then saying everybody in the group needs to agree is is a pretty uh, open vulnerability. Yeah, and I think that um, that so for instance uh, George Leakey, who was uh, from the uh, you know. Um, New Society, he uh, wrote actually some complaints about the advent of the bloc being so, having become central in uh, consensus. And that was the, that is part of the crisis that, uh, that had made it so that the, and we could see that in Occupy, that basically in an FBI informant or FBI person would block, and typically the sad thing in my experience, direct experience, the most of uh, is that they get a person of color to be the infiltrator. That's what happened in Cleveland. Was a African American man uh, volunteered. We had this in San Francisco. We've had this here recently in, in Santa Cruz. And therefore, there becomes like uh, you know the white organizers are like don't want to be racist, so give um, the black person a much more room to be disruptive. And the FBI knows that, and and that, and that's, and then if you once you discover that it's an FBI agent that is a person of color, then you then that encourages racism <laughs> against people of color right. believing that they might be informants. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's a two, it's a two for one. Yeah, yeah. So 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 leaky act. So I think that once the block became uh, central, which doesn't have to be a central tenant of consensus that he they actually i think abandoned the process uh at least in this one article as i was writing a book on consensus at one time which then became hungry for peace which then after that became the anarchist cookbook so i haven't gone back to that book and now i'm in another book about my life instead of the earlier consensus book but um and in my, my current book, I have a lot on, uh, on surveillance, maybe too much, so I don't know. <laughs> but I find surveillance very interesting in how it works. So, but the other thing is that what consensus itself and, um, and, and having no leaders and being decentralized is actually the, the magic of Food Not Bombs. Like, for instance, I don't own, you know, like I was excited to see a German Food Not Bombs chapter take the carrot and fist drawing that I had done in 1980 that became the that was the Food Not Bombs logo and they wrote drew it and it looked like an Albert Durer drawing like a woodcut by Albert Durer with a and it looked so beautiful and then I, I just you know so I was like oh you you know then eventually people made logos that were like didn't even have fists in them and but or many people would have like draw a a fist instead of being a carrot, it would be rice or it'd be a potato or it'd be a chili or it'd be a corn. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that there's no control that you have to, you can take anything off the web or any flyer and use it yourself for your food, not bomb stuff. As long as you basically are trying to, you know, make decisions in a non-hierarchical way that you're really trying to include the people that are depending on the food in your meetings to help determine what the direction of your uh, group is. Um, you know, the spirit of decentralized non-hierarchical organizing is uh, is the key. And how you make decisions, if you, you know, there was a book written on 
uh, called formal consensus or unconflicted consensus about mm -hmm. what was a, an idea called formal consensus, which is the issue that George Leakey was complaining about. But, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the spirit of not having each group being autonomous, that is involving everybody in making the decisions, however you do that, um, that's the most important aspect. And that is why we are global. You know, if we had like a, a structure where I was the president instead of a co-founder and I had, and, 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 and that's another trick. The FBI tried to make it out. Like there's been several times in history where the FBI tried to make me get people to think I was the dictator and do everybody had to do what I was doing and saying and so on. And that I had, and in reality, I have less weight or did for many years than than average volunteer in Food Not Bombs because I was automatically discredited by being a founder. Right um, now, that's not so much the case, and it's been a, you know, fortunately my personality is such that I'm enthusiastic about diversity and distance differences and and just the magic of random things occurring, and I don't have an ownership over how the you know any particular detail of Food Not Bombs, you know, although I, you know I. I do feel strongly that the three principles should be maintained, but you know, I, I you know, when I, every once in a while, when a group deviates, I remember when Edinburgh food not bombs gave out haggis and there was a lot of turmoil around that because that's a, intestines and meat and stuff. And then eventually that disappeared because um, Nottingham food, not bombs was like hassling them. And then they invented vegan haggis and then, Everything worked out fine, you know. So you know, and then what? Every once in a while, like the you know the Communist Party USA will start a food not bombs sure. group, and they'll have a director and so on. But they put out some flyers, and they start getting people that aren't in the Communist Party USA, and then all of a sudden they're decentralized again, <laughs> and don't have a president, director, and so on. So you know, these kind of this is sort of the. Uh, yeah, it's just a matter. Yeah, it's just it would not be a worldwide thing. And I should go in about 10 minutes or less, maybe. All right. Well, just 10 minutes. Let me hit uh, a couple of other things uh, real fast. So um, one of them is that uh, you volunteer with the Food Not Bombs Free School. So can you give maybe a short explanation of what free schools are for people that might not have heard of them? Yeah. So the, uh, so we've started a bunch of free schools. And the most recent one that I uh, started that was in Taos, New Mexico, about maybe now like 20 years ago. And um, what it was is that there was nobody that was, um, so everybody was a teacher, everyone was a student, and is a teacher, is a student. And so that's been really very beautiful. So for instance, we had people teaching how to make puppets and write puppet shows. And so that we, the people that knew how to do that would lead that workshop. And then we'd have somebody that would teach us how to make uh, adobe bricks and and um you know clay ovens and so we that those people and then there was a people that knew about how to make uh make 3d printers using 3d printers so that that would be the next you know so we basically everybody it would be um we had a lot of gardening workshops we had people that saved seeds that would come and tell us about seed saving We'd have, uh, you know, people that knew about canning vegetables, uh, people that were experts on fruit. 
But then that same person that was into fruit would then stay, come the next day to learn how to make Adobe bricks, you know? So that's yeah. the kind of thing that, that we've been encouraging. And so our uh, um, uh, nonprofit tax exempt umbrella is really the student up on free school. And so that, um, you know, that's because we eventually got tired of trying to get fiscal sponsors. So we, we created one. And the purpose of that really is to have a letter to give to the grocery store so that they will donate the food. So that's the entire, it's not like we're making megabots or something like that. <laughs> right. And free schools aren't very much in line with anarchist principles because the idea is that uh, there isn't the teacher and the students and the teacher has power and authority because they know stuff. Uh, Correct. But even when they don't know something, they're just, well, they're the teacher. That's that's who makes the rules. Instead, it's a case-by-case sort of situational. You might be more of an expert in this, in which case you should explain it to me, but I might be more of an expert in something else, in which case I should explain it to you. Exactly. Uh, you know, decentralized sharing of knowledge. Um, and then there have been some other uh, Food Not Bombs um, sort of offshoots. So can you talk a little bit about Food Not Lawns and what that idea is? Yeah, so what, um, so Heather Flores, who was a very uh, active with Eugene Food Not Bombs, she was renting farmland near Highway 5, Interstate 5, when she had a garden there. And she would see the big trucks of sod, because that's in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, they were growing lawns to ship to uh, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Southern California and stuff. And so she saw that going by and thought, and this is at least the story she told me at the time, and, uh, and, um, and thought, this is crazy. We should, it should be food, not wands. And um, so that evolved ra rather rapidly into being um, basically, uh, um, you know, taking over people's lawns, you know, you, you going out and digging up your lawn and growing food. And then she wrote a book called Food Not Lawns. And and, um, and there became like a movement called Food Not Lawns uh, all over all over the world, really. So that is one of the projects. And yeah. then another one that in 1992, or no, 1995, when we were playing the Food Not Bombs World Gathering in San Francisco, we had already been uh, building FM radio transmitters with a person by the name of Stephen Dunifer and doing low watt FM radio uh, stations. Uh, uh, we, at some point we had roughly 400 in North America. And so we had our own FM radio station for the gathering. But, and also I was involved in what was called San Francisco Liberation Radio and did that for many years. And then um, the, uh, we thought, well, we should create, they invented the website. The web, the web was uh, recently been made available to average people rather than people only in academia. And, um, and so then we start, so then we uh, started this thing called Indie Media. And then that took off. And fortunately, uh, Food Not Bombs activists in Melbourne, Australia, figured out a way to, uh, to do the uh, file um, transfer protocol, FTP, it kind of in the background where you don't even notice it this way it is like in Facebook now or whatever. And uh, so that, by the time the Battle of Seattle in November of 99 happened, there were already indie media centers all around the world. And that actually broke, got that story to break out worldwide as a part because, uh, um, because of indie media and, and of course because it was a world trade organization there were media from all over the world so protests that were even much bigger than the wto 
were completely ignored um, because that, there wasn't that capability. But then, so many people think of the WTO protests as in Seattle or the Battle of Seattle as being kind of like the start of a large social movement, but that actually yeah. already existed at that time. Sure. Although it was for me, I was a undergraduate at the University of Washington uh -huh. um, reading People's History of the United States when uh, that all sort of went off and uh, pushed me in a different direction than I might have gone otherwise. Yeah, that's really life. cool. Yeah, that was a wonderful. I spent uh, years working on that. Uh, I organized, I was over in Europe organizing against the European Union and the Euro in the 92 and so on. And then, uh, then I organized like the unfree trade tour, uh, where, uh, in, uh, it's two, two months of touring in 1997, advocating that we blockade the next W the, any WTO or a globalization summit that would ever come to North America. And 12 months later, they announced it would be in Seattle. And then they started all the people we met and contacted during the, the 1997 tour to mobilize and join and start working in solidarity with groups like Global Exchange, and, um, you know, the Council of Canadians and so on like that to try to, to protest there. So. Yeah. Well, I want to be sensitive to your time, but uh, this has been a fantastic conversation and I've gotten to maybe 30% of the things I want to talk to you about. So well, I'm happy maybe to I'll do have it you back on sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm happy to do it again. Yeah, sorry. It's and, like kind of a crunch day today. Oh, sure. No, it is for everybody. Where? So um, other than, uh, you know, I'll put links to the Food Not Bombs website, of course, in the show notes, as particularly uh, if people want to start their own in their own community or join up with one, as well as the link to the one that's here local uh, in McAllen, Texas, where I'm, uh, yeah, where my really university exciting. is. Um, but uh, where else would you like to point people? Um, I think that's the the, uh, the main thing. It's just going to foodnotbombs.net, and then you can, um, you know, that. And, and if you're interested in either starting a chapter, uh, you know, uh, uh, you need want to find a chapter that already exists, you can email me at keith at foodnotbombs.net or menu at foodnotbombs.net, and I'm happy to hook you up and help you get started in your uh either starting a local chapter or in connecting with one that might already be in your community. And I think, and then also through that, there's all the other things like free schools, um, the homes, not jails. I don't know if yeah, there's homes, a lot of that. Yeah, homes, not, homes, not jails as well as yeah, a squatting movement. Yeah. Where we're taking, taking over abandoned buildings. That's probably going to grow a lot in, um, um, as the, eviction tsunami starts to cascade over I, the yeah I, I would imagine and uh and other random thing really really free markets that was something that was thought of by christchurch food not bombs in new zealand and protest to a really free market economic conference that happened to be at the college across the street from where they shared food um so there's that and then people the refrigerator movement you know people's refrigerators happening everywhere um people's pantries uh, mutual aid is really taking off because of the pandemic and, and, and food not bombs is kind of a nice global network of ways of connecting with other mutual aid projects. And, and we, like I say, we're in at least 70 countries. I, we're on every continent except Antarctica. And, um, and I'm really excited to hook people up to any one of these different amazing decentralized non-hierarchical efforts. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, and I'm sure I'll be in touch when you finish your new book. Uh, 
you know, maybe we'll get you back on to uh, promote it. Oh, well, I hope you have me on before then, even because it might take another year or two. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. It depends on how fast you write, but I'll, I'll definitely okay. be in touch. <laughs> I'm getting paid by the letter. So, yeah. yeah no. Okay. All right. Thank okay, you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. That was my conversation with Keith McHenry. Links are in the show notes, including a link to how you can find a local Food Not Bombs if you'd like to volunteer, or how to start one if there aren't any near you. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today.